say that in some sense, every one of the series has something to do with identity. A question that I have about identity, both in the way that we normally talk about it, personal identity and things like that, but also in a in a more metaphysical way, even a really basic, what makes a thing a thing? Print friends, and welcome to the 47th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram, Facebook, and you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where, if you like PCL, and you want to toss a couple bucks our way a month, help us keep the lights on, it does make a world of difference to us. We have levels starting at just a dollar a month, and cool thank yous like tote bags, buttons, and stickers. You can also be just a gosh darn PCL hero, like Olivia Baker. Olivia, thank you so very, very much, and I promise as soon as that cranky lady at the post office says the borders are open for shipment, I'm going to get those stickers to you. I also wanted to say a huge thank you to Mesh Art Gallery of Chicago, who for the last years have been a huge supporter of Pine Copper Lime. Mesh offers beautiful works of art on paper created by independent artists. So if you find yourself stuck at home, thinking your walls could do with a little pizzazz, and you're looking for a way to support artists right now, head on over to meshartgallery.com, printmaking forever, so much love to the Pine Copper Lime supporters, and don't forget to shun those non-believers. My guest this week is Ellen Hack. Ellen is one of those artists whose brain is matched by her artistic brawn. Her prints are beautiful, contemplative portraits of women, as well as abstracted color field studies, which she creates using a technique of woodcut and dry point. She is someone who thinks deeply about her process and product, and, as you'll hear, just like your humble host, received her BA in philosophy. So we get into the nature of identity and how it relates to maths, politics, and printmaking. This is also the first episode in a while where we do a deep dive into some printmaker's printmaker talk about the technical side of her practice. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to question the thingness of things with Ellen Hack. Hi Ellen, how's it going? Hi Miranda, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. How is your quarantine going? It's going pretty well. Um, we're spending a lot of time out of doors, which is nice, and uh, and seeing a lot of animals, so yeah. it's been good. We've been lucky. That's so good, yeah. I think he- the healing power of just seeing animals when you're in a situation like this cannot be understated or overstated, at least for me. Yeah, that's true. 
a lot of our SPCAs actually have, um, you know, have all been you know, emptied out with adoptions for the first time in their histories. So I that's, that. I guess, one bright side of, of this. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, I met you probably five or six years ago, I would guess, when you were up in Seattle and you were showing, you had a show at Davidson Galleries and you came up for that. And then we've just sort of been in touch and worked together a bit. But for people who don't know you, would you mind giving a little introduction, which is the who you are and where you are and what you do questions? All right. Who I am, I'd say for a long time, I've said I'm a printmaker because for the last 10 years or so, I've been predominantly making prints as one side of my my work. But more and more, I'm trying to say maybe visual artist or something like mm-hmm. that. But still, I'm, I'm a printmaker at heart. I just, I love the process. I love a lot of printmaking processes. And often I will mix different processes uh, together to make a single print and I like to work in series, and overall, I'd say that in some sense, every one of the series has something to do with identity, a question Mm -hmm. that I have about identity, um, both in the way that we normally uh, talk about it, uh, personal identity and things like that, but also in in a more metaphysical way, even a really basic, what makes a thing a thing? kind of way. And so some are more literal than others. Some are representational, some are not, some are more abstract, some are large, some are small, some are have multiple pieces. And, and so it sort of depends on the project, but they all have printmaking in common in some capacity. And I'm a mother and a wife and generally enjoy doing the family life with the mm. with the artwork now which is nice and a new it a change definitely a change time wise from what i was doing before but i love the amount of time now that i have to think about what mm. i'm going to do next there's a little bit less time to execute that but i think that yeah. the amount of time now that i've been thinking about uh, the concept behind what i've been doing has been really valuable and, and so I'm enjoying that. <laughs> yeah. I had a really early episode of Pine Copper Lime. I talked to Wendy Orville. She's a monotype artist based in the Seattle area. And she talked really interestingly about that change when motherhood comes along and especially the early years of motherhood and how she just was like, you know, I was just sort of tired all the time in this way that kind of relaxed her brain and she could be like almost less judgmental and just more contemplative and so I don't know if you found that as well but yeah she was saying something almost a bit similar about the kind of time that you have when you're just focusing on keeping a small human alive for (laughs) a couple years. (laughs) That's true. I I think that's true. Mm -hmm. But it's not the first time uh, that that's happened to me. I mean, I guess for a lot of people, they'll go through different cycles of life. And I was just thinking about this today that um, early on um, in my high school and undergrad experience, you know, usually in 
in college, you'll have multiple classes, four or five at a time. And, you know, you're balancing four or five expectations always. And there's only so much time to do something. So, I mean, generally I... I am a pleaser, I think, by nature, and I wanted to do the best that I could in as many areas that that's expected of me. And so Mm. I didn't really delve into energy until after college when I was taking just one course. It was just this one summer screen printing course, and it was the first time I think I've ever really only done one thing. And it was mm. a completely different experience, and I loved that experience. <laughs> so it, yeah. was, it wasn't until really late that I, I realized how fun it is to just put your whole self into one project. But it's also nice to be able to um, divide yourself up <laughs> when you need to totally. and, and want to for another reason. It's, this is so tangential, but it's, you know, in this new quarantine life, for the first time in many years... I've been having the nightmare. It's a final for a class that I forgot to take, that I forgot to, <laughs> like, I'll have it quite often, and that I forgot to attend, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because maybe my only thing my body can think of is happening is that I'm on summer holiday. And so, yeah, (laughs) it's like, it's the last time I've had several weeks of just staying home in my life (laughs) was summer holiday and undergrad. But yeah, it's that kind of um, being spread out can definitely, certain things do fall through the cracks, but it's also really makes your mind, I think, do acrobatics that keep it in good shape as well, if you're really dedicating yourself to all of it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder how people's dreams have changed. Because I do know that, you know, having a different amount of sleep <laughs> will we'll do mm. that. And so, yeah, maybe we should listen to our dreams a little more. Right? Yeah, or maybe I just have more time to just think about it, too. That's the other thing. Yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got the time to dwell on it. Um, yeah, so I'd love to hear a little bit about... Um, where you grew up and just sort of your experience growing up and what role art had in those formative years. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm really lucky to be part of a family of artists. So I grew up in my mom's studio, which was, which was amazing. I had my own Mm. little desk probably at age three uh, in a studio, an art studio with, just a lot of resources and I was just remembering some of those things we had in our home a giant airbrush that I spent a lot of time Mm. looking at because it was stored under the the studio table and kids spend a lot of time under tables right (laughs) so you know I, I really was intimate with the the giant motor of the airbrush and another really uncommon thing to have in a home that we had was um, in the 80s and 90s a reference library like a a clip library of reference images so we had maybe 12 to 16 file cabinets full of well organized images you know animals lions tigers bears you know humans occupations all these things in the Um, pre-google image search Definitely. Exactly. Because my mom is a commercial artist. So, you Mm -hmm. know, depending on the job or what she's 
um, working on at the time, you know, she would need to have those then. And, and those were, those were in our home and available to me for my own, you know, second grade project on lions or something like that. So, uh, that was lucky. And, uh, and growing up in that environment just made it easy. I always had the supplies and I could watch and participate in a working sustainable art practice, which was also, you know, really great. Mm. So that was part of my formative childhood. And also the other side of it was just having, having my mom there as a resource and, and teacher. She had also been in New York, a, um, an art director uh, before being a commercial artist. So that was always there, the thinking of an art director and sort of looking at school assignments and, and, you know, uh from an art director's perspective is a little different. And it was really helpful, I think, long-term for, you know, thinking about creating constraints for yourself and when is an appropriate time to break those rules and why are they allowed to be broken? You know, if so, um, what are good reasons for doing it? Things like that. So that I, I think is a huge part of who I am and, Mm. and where I grew up. And then, and then after that, I went to, to school and sort of took a small break. It wasn't intentional, but, um, a little bit of a break from art and studied philosophy for my undergrad. But I really do believe that, you know, in the end, all of these different strands of, of interest will continue to circle each other and intertwine and mix yeah. and get tighter and tighter. Yeah. And then I went back to art school um, after that uh, in a program that SAIC has. SAIC is the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and they have a program that is really great for people who already have BAs to get a BFA, and that's what I did. So I went Mm. and uh, took studio classes for two years, which is where which is where I found printmaking. Also, partly because of my mom, she said, you know, while you're there, while you have access to those expensive machines, (laughs) you should do printmaking because it's amazing and. She'd actually been doing it uh, when she found out she was pregnant with me. And they had said, you know, I'm sorry, you, you can't keep doing oh, this, being yeah. exposed to nitric acid. So um, she was like, do that, do that. I never got to finish that. And I think you'll love it. And uh, do it while you have access to presses. And I did. And, of course, did love it. And then, of course, the problem is you have to get access to presses. Yes, exactly. Once you realize that you love it. But... Um, but luckily that was possible for me because we, uh, my husband, my husband was already in Berkeley and I moved to Berkeley where Kala Art Institute is located. So that was just a wonderfully lucky place to be. And, um, during those first years of our marriage, I would work freelance as a graphic designer during the uh, during the night, which allowed for me to go to Kala during the day and print in the beginning, pretty speculatively. And then once I'd done a couple of gallery shows, um, print a little bit more frequently with, with plans for shows, um, that were mm. already scheduled in the future. So that was, 
that was sort of the trajectory. I just, I just feel like we should just give like a little bit of, of extra love to Kala because I'm thinking yeah, no, it's kidding. actually, they're an incredible institution and they've come up a couple of times because of course Jenny Robinson um, printed there with you about the same time. Definitely. Another alumna of Pine Copper Lime and then Keith Sokola was an artist in residence when I actually interviewed him for the podcast. So I think anyone who is in the Bay Area at all needs to be aware of it. And even people outside of the Bay Area, it's a, a really great, really great resource. So it's just K-A-L-A. K-A-L-A. And it's yeah. wonderful because it's a resource for um, people in Northern California. But um, you know, a lot of people are moving through all the time from all over the world. So it's great for the people who stay to meet all the people coming through. And it's great for all the people coming through. In fact, I... Um, I thought, I'm not entirely sure uh, if it's still happening, but I was planning to go back this summer with the whole family for a parent mm. artist residency. Well, I mean, that may not happen exactly this summer, but uh, one day I will go back to Kala and, yeah. and just enjoy the way the light pours through the windows. So what do you think it is about printmaking that kind of captured you? I mean, obviously that connection with your mom, but sort of beyond that, what do you think it was about printmaking? Oh my gosh, I, I think things really, um, on a process level, I love the collaboration with Chance. I love that you, especially for people who, and I think this is a lot of printmakers, who are draftsmen, draftspeople at heart. We also might have a tendency to be a little meticulous with our drawing even if we don't want to be <laughs> always like, I really appreciate a lot of, of artists who have a free flowing and really expressive line. And that's not always the case for me, but when I'm working in a plate um, and then print that plate, a lot happens bet <laughs> between the last mark you made on the plate and what's happening on the paper. And there's all this room uh, for for chance, really, in the inking, in accidents that happen and then can hopefully be recreated. So, so that's a huge, a huge plus for me. I just I love the surprise that comes with that, that collaboration with chance. But I also like conceptually just how printmaking mimics life, how how life works, how life multiplies. I like that there's this matrix and then all of these different possible ways to print that one thing. It seems like a really clear metaphor for um, nature versus nurture or even, you know, how we, how cells divide, you know, how we make copies of ourselves and uh, things change, you know, sometimes there are mutations <laughs> and, and I, and I like that. I like seeing it in the process when, when I'm printing and also using it conceptually to try to help you know, answer some of the questions I'm asking with different projects. Yeah. And cause I think something particularly that I wanted to ask you was, you, you know, we have something in common, which is that we both did our undergraduate degrees in philosophy and then didn't really jump to the world of the arts, at least in terms of academia until our graduate work. And I feel like anyone who's got 
some philosophical training can probably hear already a little bit some of the seeds and even just what you've talked about so far of certain things about philosophy, you know, words like identity and process and that kind of reflection. But I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you think that teaching in a totally different field actually informs your artistic practice, Um, particularly maybe for anyone who's thinking that they would like to go study fine art in graduate work when they didn't in their undergraduate. Mostly I just wish that, that there were time to learn everything more than I know that there is. I, right now I'm trying uh, sort of to learn, go back and, and really understand math in a way that I hadn't before because everything is connected. I do believe that, that at, at some core, everything is connected and that there are versions of what you're interested in, in all of these fields. Um, and identity is, is really a perfect example. I mean, identity as a word, you find meaning different things, but also the same essential thing in, in politics, in art and in, in math and identity is an equation mm-hmm. X equals Y. This is this. This is essentially this. And so, um, solve for the, X. Find the identity of X. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm I'm sure that really with any combination of fields, that there's this place where they cross, and and that is a really fertile ground. I think for for making art. You know, it's it's another language. Mm. I tried to write papers in metaphysics on, you know, identity questions or identity paradoxes. And a lot of those will have to do with, with parts making up a whole, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's the paradox of the heap, you know, when does something become a heap? Because it's not one grain of sand, (laughs) it's not two grains of sand, you know, where, where's the crossover? And Mm -hmm. um, there's the, sort of change over time paradox uh, that some people call Theseus's ship or Jim Bowie's knife nice. where you have something that's made of components and some of those components change and when does the whole change because the components have changed and you can run yourself in circles mm-hmm. with with a paper on a question like this but with printmaking you know I, I sometimes feel like you can show it. You can with a mm. with a printmaking plate. You can change the plate, <laughs> and, and just like they're illustrating, and and the viewer can make the decision for themselves. There must it must be true that any combination of two different fields will find that area where there's an overlap, and mm. and that would be a great place to make art. <laughs> yeah, one of your series that's really coming to mind is an earlier series, but it's the one about the aging of Mark Twain. And so I see a lot of kind of these questions of identity. And then to, to describe what you did, you did several prints with manipulating the same plate um, and adding. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. really was an attempt to sort of say, okay, this plate, this plate and this man are going to age together. Yeah. And you really get, as, as you're printing it, as I was printing it, I was really seeing that that person changed. So what I did was I, 
really, I like Mark Twain a lot, um, mm-hmm. but a lot of my reason for choosing him was because, was because when I was doing the research, it was a lot easier to find posed portraits of him in the same position oh, uh-huh. over a lifetime because it was pretty, people posed pretty formally uh, back then. And then there came a time when people stopped posing quite so formally. And so everybody's head is in a different position. But I sometimes wonder if I shouldn't maybe have, or I could also just do another project with something other than a human face. I mean, it, mm. you could do it with, with anything that has a life cycle. But I, I picked Mark Twain and I found portraits of him at different ages when he's a child, uh, a very young man, sort of middle age and getting older, and then in, in his old age. And they were posed in a way that was similar enough that I could superimpose the faces on top of each other so that the eyes are always in the same place and the nose in the mouth. And, um, and so I started with the youngest one and printed it and then got rid, you know, sort of sanded off a fair amount of information, but not all of it. And then drew the, the next age and printed it. And you could still see um, the history in the plate and sometimes you'll see people talk about palimpsests. And I mm-hmm. think in some way it kind of was uh, a little bit of that. And I was definitely also thinking about um, Jasper John's number series, mm-hmm. um, that series of lithographs where he would draw one and then two on top of one. I think that's the order that he went in. <laughs> but this idea that you could see the history, the progression, yeah. and that once you got to the next level, there really wasn't any going back either. You could see the history, but it was also gone. So I, I really liked, I enjoyed that project. Yeah. yeah. And it's in the way you're, you're sort of manipulating that plate and changing it. You know, I can see that question of the spaceship in there and it's it, these ideas of, you know, if you, if you start on earth and you go to Saturn and then over the course of your journey, you replace every single part of your spaceship, um, are do you arrive in Saturn in the same spaceship, right? You know, that's the question. And, yeah. But that's so it's so easy to apply that to ourselves because, you know, the cells in our body turn over, our circumstances change. So between birth and death, do you arrive at death the same person than at birth? And and so this just seems like a beautiful sort of concrete example of one of those explorations when you're you're manipulating this plate. You know, is it the same work of art? It, you know, like then from from Mark Twain as a young man to Mark Twain as an old man and just really, yeah, nice sort of overlaps of these questions, as you say, like of identity. And then also for me, it always brings up the question of why do we care? Like, why are we so interested and engaged yeah. with identity? It's fascinating to us. Um, of who who am I and who is someone else and what does it mean to be an essence of a person for some reason really since we have written record of people thinking about abstract ideas they were fascinated by this idea because it's a complicated one and there's so many ways of looking at it I mean I I was thinking also today um, that scale plays a huge role in this too and you see this I, I wish I could bring up artist names off my off my head now, but you see this with a lot of people who are dealing with uh, parts making up a whole, you mm-hmm. know, and often scale will have something to do with it. But even on 
um, my small scale, just drawing a face, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, with the dry point, mm-hmm. drawing hair and eyebrows. I love drawing hair and eyebrows mm-hmm. <laughs> into a copper plate. There's just something about all of those lines flowing in a certain direction. But um, with eyebrows in particular, because when you're far away, you, you read them as these semi-linear shapes above an eye. But the closer you are when you're when you're carving um, in the copper, at least, they're made of these small hairs. And all mm-hmm. of those hairs are also linear, but they're headed in a completely different direction than the overall line that they make together. You know, so this mm. is... This is something that you see at all levels of, of making and, and making of a thing. Well, and I think it would be a good time to talk a little bit about your techniques because you mentioned uh, using dry point quite a bit and you like doing that for, for hair and eyebrows and I think some more of the delicate facial features. But at least in one side of your work, for instance, in, in a few of your series where you're doing portraits, you're mixing that with woodcut as well, and maybe even some hand coloring. Could you sort of speak to this cross-pollination that seems to be a theme in your work of, of these different media and how they sort of come together to create these really distinctive aesthetic that appears sort of throughout your printmaking practice? I try to use the printmaking process that will be most effective and also easiest. (laughs) Try to be efficient because there are some really not efficient parts of the process. But generally with a lot of my projects, I have combined uh, dry point or sometimes etching aquatint dry point copper plates Mm -hmm. with woodcut plates. And originally this came from looking closely at the color prints of Mary Cassatt. Mm-hmm. which is something I like to do just generally whenever there's a piece that just really works, like a piece from art history that I love sticks with me. I want to know how they did it. I want to know mm-hmm. how to create that feeling um, in myself and hopefully in someone else. I spent a lot of time looking at her process. So uh, I was lucky because I was still in school at the time so I could call down her um, her prints to the print viewing room. And uh, one great thing about doing that is when you've asked someone to bring it out of out of storage and then you're sitting at that table, you can't just say, oh, okay, thanks, and leave five minutes later. But honestly, in a museum, I think that my speed is, is pretty much that. So mm. sitting in front of her work for a good 30 minutes at least to make it respectable <laughs> that somebody did all this work to bring it down. I, I really learned a lot more than, than I would have, I think even in a museum passing by. So I spent a lot, a lot of time looking at the pieces themselves, but then also um, was lucky to find a book that I really think changed my life, which was um, Mary Cassatt, the color prints by um, Matthews and Shapiro. And in that book, they give some history in the beginning, but you can see just plate by plate, proof by proof, how Cassatt was going about making those prints and what information was on what plate. Mm. And for me, most importantly, I think how much information she took out. So mm. she would do a lot of line work on her key plate 
for the lines, usually the line work would be on that plate and then print it and you'd see, I mean, there's a lot of information there. And then as they would add the support plates, you know, for a yellow dress or you know, anything, any, any areas of flat color, then when those plates started combining, she would remove a fair amount of the line work, hmm. which I think uh, was hugely important because without doing that, um, or at least I notice when I don't do it enough, um, my work starts to look a little bit coloring book to me, you know, like mm-hmm. areas of color that are encased in lines. Whereas right. um, when when you have another plate doing the work and you don't need that work done anymore, I, I agree with, you know, with what Cassatt thought, I think, which is that you don't need that, that line to do the work because something else is doing it. So that was huge, sort of realizing, oh, you can work in and then work back out of a plate. And then and then the woodcut came partly partly because there was a fair amount of history in that book as well. And I think Kassat was looking a lot at the Japanese Yukioe prints that were being mm-hmm. shown in Paris at the time. And so a lot of the color work that um, she and um, I think her printmaker's name is Modeste Leroy, and she had him even sign with her. Mm. He was so instrumental. So um, that they were the things that they were doing with color. It seemed to me was trying to get a lot of that watercolor effect of the woodcut prints that they were seeing, and so uh, partly because. <laughs> Um, you know, I was in school and a wood plate is much less expensive right. than a copper plate. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, if they were going for the wood look, I could get the wood look with wood. Um, another huge benefit of using wood for those flat areas of color, even though I love what a aquatint does to a flat area of color where you have that usually kind of a, a, a darker edge that mm-hmm. you get, even if it's a flat area of color, you see that sort of burn around the edge. But um, one benefit of using wood for a flat area of color is that with light colors, like light yellow and kind of a creamy orange and white, you don't have any sort of chemical reaction with a metal plate. So those are those can sometimes be really hard to wipe because as you're wiping a copper plate with a light um, yellow ink, a lot of times that yellow will um, have a chemical reaction with with your metal plate and start to turn green or start to mm. turn gray, which can actually be really nice. But you know, to keep it clear, crystal clear, it you know a woodcut is super great, and also it's great for adding areas of texture as well. And another wonderful thing is adding areas of, of lighter opacity mm-hmm. over darkness. Yeah. So because of, because it's so good at doing all of those things and those things aren't the strengths necessarily of, of a metal plate, it's nice to be able to have both languages to work with because, you know, you can do, you can, you can do more. <laughs> There's just more, that um, the combination can can achieve. So I I do mix them a lot, and my my process is sort of backwards and then forward. So I'll do the key plate on copper first, which is usually the lines, and then print that 
as sort of just a proof and then quickly while it's still wet print the proof onto the wood and then this reverses oh, the image uh -huh. again and creates a really nice template for carving and then um, for actually printing the addition I will print the wood plates first um, and then let them dry which this is pretty much the longest part of the process yeah. is just waiting for all of the layers of wood to dry especially if there's multiple layers mm -hmm. and then print finally the um the etching on top which is a very satisfying stage because you'll have all the embossments of the wood but the etching just just unifies the whole thing it just yeah. puts it all in the same world and you don't have to do it that way um you can put wood on top of etchings for sure but um that etching has a tendency to just smush it all together into one one piece and I, I really like the way that looks. Yeah. I'm thinking it's really interesting what you were saying about the, you know, the light yellows and the copper changing it. It had never occurred to me before, but I think particularly with some of the palettes that you work in, which are such a subtle muted tones all playing together, that the slight change, as you said, it can be nice when a yellow goes gray or green, but I feel like your palettes are really intentional and that that change wouldn't do when you're trying to get the look that you're going for because there's a whole nother side of your work which is almost just kind of color theory or color exploration maybe you've got this um whole side with portraits but then you also do color wheels correct Right, that's true. Yeah, so that's the more um, abstract side of of my practice. But I've been doing it sort of in tandem since mm. 2012. And it's nice because it's still printmaking, but it has different goals. That project has different goals. Mm. Um, and it's also a different scale. So it's it's nice to be working in, in different scales a lot. That, so th those pieces can get pretty big. The idea behind that group, the color wheels group, is um, looking at parts that make up a whole. And all of those parts are coming from this origin that's no longer present. So if the mm -hmm. origin is the original color wheel plate, I'll just you know print a hundred of them, say, and then look at them as individual entities. So I just look at them one at a time as compositions. You know, what am I going to, what am I going to use this wheel to document today? Is it going to be the changing color of the bay throughout the day? Mm. Or am I going to list something or is it going to be, you know, a color theory uh, study, anything. And so I would do a lot of those and not really think about the whole, just stack them all up. And then mount those onto panels and start arranging them like puzzle pieces. You know, how, what is the most harmonious combination of these things? And in doing and that, that's a pretty long part of the process. Like, w you know, looking at everything on the ground, what could go together. It, it's a little bit like making a quilt in some sense, but mm. sometimes happenstance will be on your side and there will be 
you know, movement of one thing that continues to another thing organically. And I really try to make it happen organically when it's possible. Um, but then I'll arrange the pieces in what I think it has a overall composition with flow. And then from that point on, really try to go in and bring it out. Say, okay, this is now the given structure. You know, how do I make this thing its best self? And sometimes that's it's really painful. I'll have to get rid of something that's beautiful to sacrifice mm. it for the, the overall whole. But I also think that that's a good practice, you know, learning how individuals make up a larger coherent community and what sacrifices have to be made and what what pieces are highlighted because of their environment and things like that. So it's been a really good learning vehicle, but mm-hmm. also um, a printmaking project that's very different in goal from uh, my representational work has a lot of planning that goes in before anything even starts, before I, I do pretty extensive reference images, whereas this, a lot of the planning happens after the pieces have been made. So it's it's a nice a nice balance for the type of thinking that goes into mm. into making mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and kind of being able to scratch two different itches, I think would be really satisfying. Exactly. And and maybe, yeah, when you're when you're at a point where just staring at reference photos is getting uh, getting tedious, you can just relax and let the other side of your brain take over a bit, I would imagine, and exactly. doing those. Yeah. And so for the, the figurative work that you do, we've touched on it a little bit, but it's almost entirely, it's funny because we've just mentioned Mark Twain, but outside of Mark Twain, it's almost entirely images of women and quite often young women. In a few of the series that you've done, it's um, entirely portraits of young women. I think in the beginning, it was partly just who was in my world. So Mm -hmm. in, in the beginning, I come from a family of all girls and, you know, we had a lot of friends who were girls mm-hmm. and they were a lot of them were younger than I am because I'm the oldest and my youngest sister is 10 years younger than I am mm-hmm. so in the beginning um it was my cheap model <laughs> you know who is there who's oh, there yeah write what you know and, uh-huh. and this is what I knew um and then it's not that I am not interested in drawing adults but with the 40 Frida's project, for example, it, there are girls and women in that project, but the pieces that resonated with most people, and it's pretty easy to see what those pieces are with my bodies of work because I have a tendency to work in a series, and that series has a pretty rigid framework to it. And so often you feel like you're comparing apples to apples, and when you are comparing apples to apples, it's pretty easy to know what is your favorite and what you're drawn to. Um, And so I think a lot of people were drawn to the young girls in that series. Mm. And it was a good lesson. You know, I, I wanted to know why, because I was, I don't, I didn't want to (laughs) be, I didn't want to have ageism necessarily in the series. But I, I think that for one thing, a lot of people, People are drawn to youth and there are reasons for that, especially in this series where, where people were dressing up. Mm -hmm. So the act of dressing up, imagining that you are someone else 
when you are young and perceived to have your whole life in front of you has mm. this one sort of optimistic, um, you know, you know, look at all the possibilities feeling to it. Whereas, you know, the older the model, there are, you know, maybe, maybe it brings up the idea that your life didn't pan the way you thought mm-hmm. it would, or, you know, why, why are you fantasizing about another life? Yeah. Um, and I still have complicated feelings about that because I, I definitely, you know, the older I get, especially, yeah. the, I definitely think, of course, you know, we're all still having these dreams and imagining other lives and other possibilities and other people. So that was an interesting thing to learn from that project for me, actually, that, uh, a lot of people responded to the young faces, and because of it, those are the ones that tended to be on the cover or uh-huh. on the postcard or things right, like right. that. But there were there were older um, models, and sometimes whole families of models. Uh, so it was it was nice to meet those people. And then sometimes there are no models at all. I mean, at this point, I have I have a pretty extensive reference library and. Uh, sometimes willing, sometimes less willing um, <laughs> child. So if if I have a s- sort of certain angle of a face that I want to mm. that I really want to highlight, but I don't have the rest of the body, um, I can I can sort of piece together a really ugly in Photoshop, although <laughs> helpful as a reference image, somebody else's hair on somebody else's face, and right. then get get my child to, to fill in the rest of the body parts for me or yeah. even get myself to do it and uh-huh. sort of shrink accordingly. But the things that are really important, um, I can kind of fake it on most things, but the, the references that I really like to have are faces, hands and feet because mm. they just never do quite what you think they're going to yeah. do. And, and having that real weird bend, I mean, sometimes it looks so weird until that <laughs> last line is in there and you think, oh, okay, yeah, that, that's a hand. That, yeah. you know, that finger is coming towards me. And I like that process. I like thinking, oh, man, you know, this this does not look like a hand. And then realizing, hey, it did. So, yeah, sometimes there are no models at all. So it just sort of depends on the image. But also more and more as as I have a larger diversity of, of people in my life. I mean, my son is, you know, getting older now and more and more I've been working with different faces and sometimes even just to see, you know, really what, what's in a face here, how much, how much of this is what we're adding to it. I have, you know, used all different faces, even boys faces in portraits of girls. And guess what? No one ever notices Mm -hmm. because, you know, just a tiny, change here or there changes so much on a face. Just the tiniest tweak on the edge of an eye goes from one emotion to another. And so these are the things that you can do after the fact to really help um, get your own story across, I think. Yeah. Well, and hearing you talk about it too, the way people were responding to the young images of younger women in this sort of dress-up mode, because 40 Fridas was a, a portrait of 40 women imitating portraits of Frida Kahlo. And so, and that's mm-hmm. what you were talking about when you had, you know, you used some older women, some younger women, some quite young-looking women. And I think that kind of going back to this idea of identity, 
it's not set when you're young and right and that that potential yeah. is there you're at the beginning of your decision tree yeah there's all these you know infinite possibilities yeah that's it's true yeah it's true i i don't know how i feel about it i mean it... <laughs> I, you know it doesn't you don't always learn something you want to have learned from right. one of these projects but <laughs> But that is what I learned. Well, I heard yeah. on another podcast, I think a couple of days ago, something about how by the time you're 35, it's really set in stone. Like that is who you're going to be. And whether that's someone who likes novelty and hates kittens, you know, or something, you know, like whatever it is, it's like whatever the things that make someone up, that's really fundamentally isn't going to change and I'm 35 (laughs) so (laughs) I just it was a funny feeling hearing that and in a way it kind of sounded like so many doors shutting and it's not that I don't like who I am you know it's not like oh I that sucks that I'm never going to you know change these big parts of my personality that I hate it's nothing like that but it's almost maybe perhaps even a sense of claustrophobia to hear an outside source say, you're done. This is it. This is, this is all you're done. You're not, no big changes are on the horizon. So for the rest of your life, you're just going to be this way. But I also do think you can be the exception that proves the rule or, you know, really, you know, when you're applying to grants and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you realize, okay, I've been doing this for 10 years and I'm not technically emerging. (laughs) This is a label that, you know, you, where does the line of emerging uh, end? And um, when I was there about, you know, two years ago, I really did think, okay, now is the time. Now is the time to learn something new to make sure that, you know, I do want to, I want to always be learning something new. And so, uh, I did, I did start a pretty big painting project then partly because of that, you know, I want to keep pushing the boundaries out uh, a little bit (laughs) just to keep the horizon open. Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually thinking about that in terms of hearing this fact that, you know, by the time you're 35, you're, you're done evolving. And it actually kind of sounded like, more of that may come from circumstance and that by the time that you're 35, you know, you might own a house, have your partner, have your career. And so much of what we're made up of is the ways in which we react to the stimulus in our lives. And if that stimulus doesn't change, of course we don't change. And so circumstances where you say, I don't know, at 33, leave everything you've ever known and move to another continent or decide to take (laughs) or decide to take on something like a big painting project, something that's outside of that comfort zone, outside of that normal stimulus, that does seem like a pretty effective way to fight that cementation, that stagnation if that's something that's important to you. And if doing yeah. that is something that's important to you, good news, that's a part of your personality that's not going to change. Oh, yeah. Well, then, yeah, then we're stuck in a, 
right. But look at yeah. Catherine, Catherine Polk's interview. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, she started her printmaking process much later than 35. And look at that amazing mm-hmm. body of work. So that, that was an inspirational podcast as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do think it's hard when, I do think it's harder to make big changes at a time when your life is linked to a lot of other lives because mm, you, you'll mm-hmm. have to get them to get on board with you. Yeah. But sometimes they're on board with you, in which case, <laughs> go for it. You know. yeah. Part of it, I'm sure, as well, is that our identities get wed to other identities, figuratively and literally, as we move through the world. And because we're such social creatures the breaking of those kinds of bonds is one of the most traumatic things that can happen to us um, in a lot of ways, you know, whether it's through like divorce or death or the end of a friendship, like that's when we truly feel loss. And so it makes sense to seek to protect the relationships and privilege that above sometimes, you know, career and um, little life goals that we've had. It's, uh, yeah, that's definitely a part of, of who we are. The, the hardest part of leaving the States was leaving people, of course. I mean, it's, you know, I don't, I don't miss anything about the food or the healthcare system, but it's <laughs> the humans, you know, that we, we find ourselves attached to as we move through the world and that make up so much meaning for us. So, Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like you've brought us perfectly back to our, you know, I mean, our current pandemic um, yeah. places. So yeah, all those all those webs are stretched, and it's it's hard when they're there. Mm-hmm. We feel them because they're being stretched. And mm-hmm. well, I I feel like that is a beautiful sort of uplifting note to kind of close things up on as we're reaching our our hour recording mark here. But before we sign off, I would love it if you could tell everyone where they can find you, where they can see your work, find out where to purchase it, follow you on social media, just kind of any way people can connect with you. Probably the best way, um, I have a lot of links on my website. So my website is ellenheck.com. And then I have links to, to gallery on the website and any upcoming events. It's possible that there will be an upcoming event in June at Sager Botus Gallery, uh, but it's possible that that may also be online. Everybody's yeah. sort of playing it by ear right now. So, sure. um, But that will be posted up there if that is indeed happening. And then at the end of the year, uh, knock on wood, um, at Baker Shore Fine Art, uh, in Midland, Texas, uh, I'll have a 10-year retrospective, which is exciting because it'll be fun to sort of look over all of those prints. So those are two mm. possibly uh, on the horizon events, possibly yeah. online events. So, uh, but information will be on the website if anyone is interested. Beautiful. Well, I will put a link to that. Um, and fingers crossed that this world is healed enough in a few months' time that we can start to think about being together again in an art space. And um, a tenure retrospective sounds like an amazing way to usher back in not as distance, distanced socializing, I guess. 
So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Miranda. It was great to hear your voice. Yeah, you too. It was so nice to connect again and to hear that you're doing well and just to have a great chat about your work and sharpen our philosophical teeth a little bit together, which I always enjoy doing whenever we talk. And um, yeah, I'll be in touch um, when this is coming out and everything. And thank you so much again for, for giving me an hour or two of your evening. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Ellen. Take care. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Ryan O'Malley. We'll talk teaching, sports, traveling with Drive-By Press, and how the jobs that you get just to pay the bills as an artist can influence your practice in ways you never expected. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak. Happy birthday, my love. We could not have pine copper lime without you. And music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Music